You've got it. Please open it to Genesis chapter 2. We have been uh, going through a series. We have begun a series. This is sermon 2 of that series on the book of Genesis. Uh, As I said last week, I don't know if I said this or not, I think we're going to do this in about 34 sermons, and there's supposed to be 52 sermons, or uh, sermons, uh, Sundays in a year. So I plan to get through the whole thing. You plan to be here for the whole thing. How about that? Amen. Last week, we talked about the creation story, and we started with the reminder to ourselves that uh, you'll never know who you are or where you're headed until you know where you're from. There's a reason why these first 11 chapters of the Bible are so incredibly important. It is the foundation for this entire book. All 66 books, they all crumble if we do not know and believe Genesis 1 through 11. Um, this, uh, the pursuit of this particular series you know, uh, Brother, Brother Lester is teaching through uh, the book of Genesis, or has taught through the book of Genesis in, the, um, in our Wednesday night Bible study. And if you haven't been for part of that, I strongly encourage you to come. It's very academic. It's uh, very fruitful, and uh, it's, it would be worth your time. Um, but, you know, and we also have Answers in Genesis, which is our uh, Sunday school curriculum. And pretty soon when we wrap up uh, this series, uh, the, the, the last few units of this Answers in Genesis curriculum, guess what we're going to do? We're going to roll back to the beginning and start back at the beginning. And we're going to have opportunity to see from Answers in Genesis, who's, they've built a whole ministry on uh, some of the science, some of the uh, uh, the different views that are uh, talked about from that we can take from the book of Genesis and, and inform our worldview and inform how we see the world, how everything operates in this world and our place in it. Uh, but I, I believe that the author, and I talked about this last week, had a specific intent for the original readers of this book. He wanted them to capture something that sometimes under the, uh, uh, the, the really good, talented, and hard work of a lot of preachers and teachers, sometimes that, that intent, that focus gets a little lost. And so I hope, that's not saying any of that is not worth your time. It is absolutely worth your time. But I hope this morning you're not expecting me to talk about uh, all the intricacies of, of uh, the marriage relationship and, and why that matters and all that. Those are important things, and, and we'll touch on each and every one of them, but the focus is going to be what we hope the author's focus is. The subject this morning is the fall. We'll be in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But we're going to start. I have five points this morning. First point is we're going to talk about the demand of God. Because God had a demand for his creation. If you go to verse 16 and 17, we see this. And the Lord God commanded the man. So this is God speaking and he is insisting upon a certain will that he wants to see lived out in in the lives of men. The Lord commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you so much uh, for, 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 Lord, that your word is not, is not just a collection of stories, that it's not just a, a collection of histories and, and made up fables and manipulated uh, uh, myths that have been uh, put forth for us to be fooled. Lord, it is, a, it is a book of high intelligence. It is a book that is masterfully crafted. It is the greatest book in all of human history, and we praise you that we all have access to it. Lord, I pray that it will shine this morning, and that we will get the author's intent for this particular passage. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. The demand of God is what? I know it's Baptist church and I'm supposed to be preaching, so everybody's got to be quiet. Don't die. There you go. That's a good, I like that one. You know what God's real command is? Trust me. Obey me. 
hey, man, I need you to follow me. Depend upon me. This is an important, this is maybe the most important part of this entire passage. Because everything hinges on this command by God. To follow, to depend, to, to obey. These, I think this command echoes forward into Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. God made a demand. He, he commanded man to follow him in a specific way. The second point is that God had some intentions for his creation. If we zoom out a little bit and, and take a, a little broader view of this, we, if we look back to that last week and think about Sermon 1, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, verse 3, that was a, real, it was a cosmic view of God's creation. That was, that was the high, this is everything from the top view. God creates the world. It reveals God's character. We talked about that last week, his eternality, his independence, his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his sovereignty. He creates mankind, God's most significant creation, who is to be dependent completely upon God, to act as God's representative on earth. Then God rests in his reign on that seventh day. He settles himself into his holy sanctuary And he begins his reign over creation. And then man was to represent God. God did not turn loose of his authority of his creation. A lot of people like to say that, right? We talked about this last week. He said, a lot of people like to say, well, you know, I believe God created everything. Yeah, that, and I don't know if he did it over a billion years or six days or whatever. Uh, The Bible says he did it in six days. I don't know how you can refute that by what the Bible says. Um, and I wasn't there to tell you that the Bible's wrong, but God was there, and that's what he says. So um, they like to say, well, I believe God created everything, and then he just kind of spun it and said, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go do something else. No, God stayed intimately connected to his creation. He continues to rule. He continues to be sovereign. But man is established as his agents to see his will done in this earth. And as we are his agents, his representatives, his imago Dei, we are, to rep- we are to align ourselves with his divine will. We are to, his priorities are to be of supreme importance to us. And his practices are how we are to do what God wants us to do. Genesis 2, if you go to verse 4, a lot of people like to say these are conflicting accounts. I, dis, I strongly disagree. These are complementary accounts. So if, if Genesis 1, 1 through 2, verse 3 is the cosmic overhead view, then this is God's, uh, the account of God's creation with man's place in this new world, the main focus. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. We see again, the God is, we kind of sum up the first four days of creation. And and then we see in verse five, it kind of sums up everything by saying that there was not a man to till the ground. That determines the focus. What is our focus here? Man. God's relationship with man, uh, man's, uh, how he exists, how he's supposed to operate. There's no man to till the ground. I think the author wanted us to know that God saw that there was a need for his creation. There was a need for a powerful, authoritative being that, God could, that could act as God's steward. Adam and Eve were those first two. We're going to talk a lot about them. But you're part of this too. You're part of this too. We are part of that powerful, we are powerful authoritative beings acting as God's stewards or not. Verse 6. 
But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. God was willing to provide all that is needed for his creation. That's just a hint at that. There's way more that we could look at this. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God creates man in a way that has not yet been described in the Bible. We have a whole new idea. Before God had, had spoken into existence, we saw last week, we talked about his divine power, his divine fiat, okay, where he just, he would speak and then it would happen. But this is a far more intimate thing. We have an, a new idea uh, where God creates man, forming him like a potter forms clay. How many of y'all have ever done pottery work? I have a little pottery thing that I made in like sixth grade, and I've chosen not to bring it for you this morning. Melissa has much more beautiful things that she made in her art classes school. Um, a, a, a skilled potter will make pieces with love and care and thoughtfulness. God is doing the same. God creates man from the dust. I think uh, that reflects our lowly origin, where we come from. We come from the ground. But man is not merely dust. We're not just dust. God breathes into us the breath of life. And, and then, so now man is both dust and divine. And then we see in verse 8 that God places man in Eden. It says, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden a little bit. I, I, uh, I, last week when we talked about uh, God, on the seventh day, he rested. I said that he rested, and I didn't just stop there. I said he's rested to reign. That I didn't really have as much time as I wanted to explain that. Let's talk about Eden a little bit. Eden was God's first temple or tabernacle. It was his first place to be in his creation. I found uh, uh, there's 11 parallels noted between Genesis uh, two and three in the whole of temple theology. And I just want to quickly just touch on those so you know that I'm not a quack. Uh, it says about the Garden of Eden that God walked in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 verse 8, but he also walked in the tabernacle um, in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 23, 2 Samuel 7 in the temple. It says he walked in the sanctuary. Uh, the sanctuary's entrance, I think is interesting, is it's, in, it's eastward. <laughs> Do y'all remember, uh, it talks about in, in Genesis 2 verse 8, we just read that verse, and also in 3 verse 24, but uh, whenever, he, whenever he shuts them out and he closes it up, it's, it's described as, um, as eastward, okay? But how many of y'all remember which way the tabernacle was supposed to face when they, when they, put it, when they would set it up wherever they stopped in the, in the, in the wilderness? Remember which way? You know the answer because I'm trying to lead you into it, right? East, east. The cherubims are described there in chapter 3, verse 24, is guarding that gate. Also, they're in his sanctuary in Exodus 25. I have a whole bunch of references here if you want to see them. Just let me know. But uh, the tree of life is in this sanctuary, this Garden of Eden. And chapter three, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, you talk about that. You know what the menorah or the candlestick is supposed to represent? It's the tree of life in the tabernacle and in the, uh, uh, the, the, the temple. There's features about the garden, emblems uh, uh, that, that are ex- existing in Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9, about the trees and, and how they are, that, that uh, Moses waxes, waxes a bit about, and the design of different elements of, their, of, the, of the fixtures that were in the tabernacle in Exodus 25, 31 through 35, and more places about the temple. Uh, they were to cultivate and keep this space. And we see in Genesis 2 verse 15 and other places, that's what, what the job of the priest was, was to keep uh, all of the, all of the uh, articles that had to do with the tabernacle and the temple. God clothed Adam. Guess what Moses did? In, uh, uh, he clothed the priests. I mean, I, the, there's rivers in uh, the verses 10 through 14 of chapter 2, rivers from Eden, uh, Psalms 46.4. Uh, I'm going to turn there real quick. And just so you know, like I said, that I'm not a quack. I'm not making this stuff up. 46 verse 4. 
44, 45, 46, verse 4. There is a river and streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Talks about there being rivers in His presence. Gold, Genesis 2, 11 to 12, referenced very much throughout the tabernacle. Bedellum, Genesis 2, verse 12, and uh, Numbers 11. That color of Bedellum is described uh, is used to describe the manna that was to be in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Onyx, uh, Genesis 2, verse 12, also referenced in Exodus 25, 7, 28, 9, uh, 20, and then 1 Chronicles 29, 2. Um, there are so many parallels that I think what the author, Moses, is trying to make sure they understand that this is God's first tabernacle. This is his first sanctuary, the the dwelling place of God. And a tabernacle and a temple is to be a place where God exists with someone. Who? Us. With man. This is that first place. So God is is resting to reign in his holy tabernacle. Man, then, is placed in this tabernacle, in this sanctuary, with every provision from God. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads, the name of which of the first is Pison, that is which uh, that it is, uh, is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellum and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And the, name, and the, uh, uh, the same is, is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is it which goeth forward toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. I just I want to, us to get a hold of the fact that God is setting up what is to be his ideal intentioned society, and it is an agrarian society. Man's command is to keep, to cultivate, and God has set up this, agrarian, this agricultural society where man is completely dependent upon God. If you're going to, how many of y'all have ever grown a crop? My dad's parents, my dad is here this morning, um, and my mom and my mother-in-law, and really blessed they're here. Uh, my dad, when he was born, his parents were sharecroppers because they were dirt poor. And they didn't have anything, but they, they were sharecroppers. And my dad was born in the clinic in Bonham, or he's probably going to correct me somewhere else, some smaller, more insignificant town. Um, when, you, when you're a sharecropper or when you're trying to, when you're a farmer, what do you need? You need some things, don't you? You need good ground, correct? You, you need trees or, or, or plants that produce fruit, uh, that will produce food to sustain you and to, to sell if you're living. You need rain. You need water. And, and you know, men can cultivate ground. Of course, they can't do it without God's help. They need God's materials to cultivate the ground. Men can tend plants and fruits. Do you know men can't make it rain? I mean, I suppose they can now. They're doing it in certain parts of the world. They seed, seed the clouds. Have you ever heard about this? It costs them millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to do it. But they can do it. God can do it for free. What God is setting up for man is this society where man is completely dependent on, dependent on God. Where man finds everything that is good from God. Verse 16. We read 16 and 17. I'm sorry. We're going to go to verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Okay, now wait a minute. You remember last week when we read Genesis chapter 1? When he made the heavens and the earth, when he was done, what did he say? It's good. When he, made, uh, when he divided the land from the water, he said it was, yeah, and all the, 
sun, moon, and stars, and the heavens that was all. And then he made the plants and, and the tree and the herb yielding seed and all that stuff. And when he was done, he said it was good. And all the animals, he made them. When he said he was done, he said he was And when he made man, he said it was And when he saw the whole thing, he said it was very good. But here, in verse 18, what does it say? The Lord God said, it is not good. Hey, we got a not good situation here. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. I think it's interesting. A lot of people think this is one of the reasons why this doesn't fit. Uh, completely with chapter one. I think it's interesting. It talks about creating man first, and then and then this chapter, he creates all the animals. I don't know that that necessarily is changing the order of things, but the emphasis is on man. And so it says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever... Adam called every living creature that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and all fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found in help meet. So there's this not good situation. God creates all these creatures, but there's no appropriate partner for him. There's no appropriate relationship uh, between these creatures and Adam that is going to satisfy what Adam needs. So God takes some corrective surgery. It says in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God made, excuse me, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. God takes this not good situation and corrects it with a woman. I've known some guys who needed a woman they couldn't live without, and it would straighten their life out. Adam was a man who needed a woman, and God saw that, and he is again demonstrating that while that man is to be dependent upon everything from God, all the needs of his physical body, but also man's need for appropriate relationships. God determines what an appropriate marriage is. I love what Matthew Henry had to say about the creation of woman. He wrote that woman was not made out of his head, Adam's head, to top him or dominate him. Woman was not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Out of his side to be under his arm to be protected by him and to be near his heart to be beloved by him. God created something else that was really good, an appropriate relationship between a man and a woman. And then uh, if, you, if you look into the Hebrew, uh, there's another new thing that happens in this text. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's first words after his surgery that are recorded for us at least, when he meets this woman that he'll name Eve, His words in Hebrew are Hebrew poetry. It switches from being uh, uh, this this narrative description to being a poetic thing. I'm just going to tell you, that's romantic. It's beautiful. There's something deeper here too. It's not just a genetic connection. Verse 24 and 25, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There's something deeper than just a genetic connection. There's to be a covenant relationship. And that's clued in for us by that 
word cleave. Also leave in verse 24 means leaving the covenant commitments of, uh, of being a child under a father and a mother and then cleaving in a new covenant relationship between a man and a wife. Man. And then Adam speaks poetry. Good. It's good. We're talking about what is God's intention for his creation, for, these, for, the, for man in, in this world was to be completely dependent upon him for all things that are good, even appropriate relationships. But then we see, thirdly, the response of man. Verse 1. We have an introduction of a new character. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, God, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of that tree, then your eyes are going to be open, and, they, and then you shall be as gods, now knowing both good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make um, one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. God had, a com- had given them a demand. Hey, follow me. Hey, trust in me. Would you, listen, man, I, Adam, I want you to believe in me, to do what I say. Obey me, man. Obey me, Adam. Listen, I, I will provide any, everything for you. My intent is to provide everything that is good for you to have. Even an appropriate and wonderful relationship that Adam was pretty pleased with from the get-go. But man's response. Well, we see the serpent. I, I read in studying for this, I read someone argued that the serpent wasn't necessarily an evil being. I quit reading that book. You know, the serpent's description is subtle or crafty in other translations does not necessarily mean he is evil. You can be crafty without being evil. And that was what he was trying. He was trying to make that case. But I think it's clear when you examine the serpent's behavior, the things he says, the attitudes he tries to instill in, in Eve, we can clearly deduce his intention is to undermine God and to destroy man. He questions God even talking to them. He questions that they hath God said? He questions their communi- God's communications. He, he suggests that God's command was just something that God said, like it wasn't really that important. He questions God's goodness and his generosity. He says, hath God, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Is, is God like, y'all think that God's really good. He says he's good. He says you can trust him and you can follow him, but... Are you sure? I mean, he won't even let you have everything he's put in the garden. Is he really that good? Is he really that generous if he's going to withhold something good from you? He outright denies God's warning. You shall not surely die. He implies God of having an immoral motive. God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes are going to be open. God wants to limit something in your life. He wants to take something away from you that you should have. God has this evil motive. The serpent suggests that God's statement of negative consequences is actually going to be positive. This is going to work out in your favor, guys. You don't need to trust him. You shouldn't obey him. Why would you follow him? Why would you depend on what he has to say? He's he's withheld something from you. 
the author of that book who tried to suggest the serpent wasn't necessarily evil, I like to tell him the serpent is clearly a vile character. He's man's enemy. He is the embodiment of evil and, and the devil. So sin arrives. But sin is not a result of there being something wrong with the fruit. I think oftentimes there's a little confusion about the fruit. Uh, my, my sermon slide has an apple up there. I, we have no, I don't know if it's an apple. Um, it was probably something gross like durian or something, you know. <laughs> like there's something wrong with fruit. Like the fruit is a poisoned apple. The, I, uh, the fruit did not have some kind of magical, even, even have some magical ability to confer evil knowledge. The sin wasn't even pursuing wisdom. You know, whenever you, you go through Eve's rationale, what she wants to do is she wants to pursue knowledge and wisdom. And she thinks, fooled by this serpent, maybe there's something more that she doesn't know, something she's going to learn, something beneficial. The author makes it clear that the sin was man seeking, I'm going to use a big word, moral autonomy. Man was seeking to make his own moral judgments without God's divine perspective. Psalms 19, verse 7, says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening, opening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. Altogether, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. And Adam and Eve thought that they could decide, make better moral judgments for themselves. And it's sort of ironic, a little bit. I think Adam and Eve, I tried to, uh, Adam and Eve wanted all things that were good. And God clearly had provided all things that were good for them. But the moment that Adam and Eve sought to get something that was good, Outside of dependence upon God, all of that that which is good was ruined for them. This would be a hilarious joke if it wasn't so serious. Clark wrote, It's not that man had no knowledge before and gained knowledge afterwards. Or that to know good and evil meant to experience evil in addition to good. Rather, he takes upon himself the authority. Man takes upon himself the authority to make the declaration of what is good. And so then, enters into this creation, man's intention for God's creation. That's my fourth point, in case you were following. Man from this fall has decided that he should be the decider, the arbiter of what to eat and what not to eat. Of what to do and not what and what not to do. How to live and, and how to not live. It says in verse 7, the eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, where art thou? He said, I've heard thy voice in the garden. And I was, well, I was afraid because now I'm naked. I, I, because I was naked and, and I hid myself. I'm ashamed. And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of that tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? 
I'm going to go ahead and play the devil's advocate here and, and ask the question, does, did God ask these questions because he didn't know the answer? No, God knew the answer to these questions. He, in his grace, is giving them opportunity to confess. Man said, well, let's see, did he confess? Man said, the woman, <laughs> hey, you remember that, uh, that chick that I was so happy to meet and boy, she's beautiful and, and uh, I was poetic and romantic. Uh, uh, the woman who you, you know what, you gave him to, uh, her to me, she gave me of the tree and yeah, I kind of ate some. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman, this opportunity to, to respond to God in repentance, she says, uh, well, I mean, did you see a snake when you came in? There was a snake here, God, and, and, and he, he was kind of like talking really slick to me, and well, he beguiled me, and I ate. You know, there's consequences for sin, and we're constantly surrounded by it. I mean, let's, let's look at what we see here in the text. It says the serpent, Lord said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children and they, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and shall eat and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return into the ground, for, thou, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Adam, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothed them. <coughs> and the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. <coughs> and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to, the, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So about the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turn every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Just here in this text, we see that man is cursed. Mankind, not just men. Okay. Women's women, women are fulfilled and giving, having children. Now their childbearing is going to come through pain and sorrow. Man's fulfillment by God's design is, is through working and providing for his family. Now that's going to happen through much difficulty. Marriage is now going to be under stress. <coughs> the earth is cursed. Sin affects the earth. It now brings forth thorns and thistles. And that's going to get worse. It's going to continue to develop. The serpent, the beast, would be cursed. And without going into great detail, the serpent is suffering tremendous humiliation because of his involvement in this. <coughs> but maybe worst of all, not maybe, worst of all, is the relationship between God and man has been broken. If you remember from the beginning, <clears throat> when God, God's intention and I, I, see, I keep using that word, and I believe it is his intention, but God is no fool. God knew what was going to happen, and God had other intentions too. Okay, What, what I'm saying is, is God didn't expect for things to not go the way it went. God expected sin to enter into the world. But his creation is put together in such a way that this is his ideal intent for his creation, that man should live in God's presence experiencing and benefiting from all that is good directly out of God's wisdom and provision and power and sovereignty that will experience wonderful, appropriate, God-given relationships and 
and, and, to, and to just continue in that way, vein. And I, I love that if you study the Bible and you look here, you see that this is what God's intent is. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, guess what it's like at the end? It's exactly like this. We are living in his presence, experiencing all that is good because of God's provision. And, and it's only because, though, when we, when we de- put our dependence upon him, um, but again, that, that relationship has been destroyed. We see them, the intent is now they're supposed to be in this, in this divine sanctuary with God. And then after they sin, what happens? They're thrust out. You can't be here anymore. Our relationship is broken. How many of y'all are human? Okay. Uh, how many of y'all have real feelings? Like you have feelings and you worry and uh, you are afraid. How many of you have ever felt self-loathing? How many of you ever felt like maybe your life is pointless? How many of you ever felt like uh, uh, everything about your life is going in the wrong direction and there's no hope? You know, that's not what God intended for your life. The only reason why we feel any of those things is because of that day. Uh, This day, just a few days after the creation of all things, maybe just the next day, I don't know. Man decided, you know, I, I think I can decide what's good and bad on my own. And now we live in a culture that constantly seeks independence from God. God's intent was us, for us to be dependent on him. In fact, that was his, it was his demand, you remember? was for us to live dependent on him, on his wisdom, on his ways, on his practices, on his priorities, on his will, to follow him. But today we live in this culture where the norm is independence from God. And do you see the results? If you don't, uh, before you go home, get on Loop 610 and go south of, just, go, just drive through the Galleria. You'll experience the results of sin on the freeway. But boy, it's much graver than that. This beautiful relationship that God set up between man and woman is under tremendous attack. And you know who's attacking marriage in the world? We are. We've decided, many of us have decided, we think we know what marriage should look like. We, we're the arbiter of what's good and bad. We can decide what an appropriate relationship is. I wonder, has that really panned out and produced a lot of beautiful fruit that pleases God? No. Marriage is under attack. Families are under attack. What are they under attack from? Us. Us deciding that, you know what, maybe the household doesn't need a a husband and a father. You know what, Uh, maybe our government would do a better job of raising children and deciding what they believe and and what is right and wrong. You know what, Uh, the parent maybe shouldn't have as much say in their education. This world is under attack. What God has created is under attack. Abortion. Sex outside of marriage. Violence. Selfishness. That me first attitude that pushes everyone away. Let me tell you, there's, there's nothing in this book that endorses any of that. It's not God's plan. It's not his will. It's not how he would like to see us live. But God is good. God takes action to restore his creation. 
Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Um, I'm not going to go into all the biology involved here, but women don't have seed. And the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And in the same verse where we see judgment, we see God's grace and his mercy. Verse 21, God made coats of skins and he clothed them. Um, how do you get a skin off an animal? You got to kill it. Blood has to be shed. God is providing a covering for their shame. Shame that they had never experienced before. Shame that wasn't existing in, in chapter 2, verse 25. But because of sin, shame has now been introduced. And because of shame, blood had to be shed. Because of shame and sin... An animal had to die to clothe them. And who did it? God did it. If you're here this morning and you never trusted Christ, um, this sin to eat a fruit doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's just a little bit of fruit. But every sin is the same. It's deciding for yourself what's right and wrong. It's deciding for yourself what, where to go and where not to go. It's deciding for yourself to live outside of God's, what God has decided is good. That's what sin is. Murder, it comes from the same place. Lying, stealing, adultery, looking upon a woman with lust or a man with lust. All of that points back to the, it's the same in God's eyes. Maybe you're here and, and you go, yeah, but you really don't know what I've done. Let me tell you, God knows. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Whosoever means anybody who says, well, you don't know what I've done. God knows what you've done. And he's saying, you're still a whosoever. You can still trust me. Jesus said he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you, you're saying to yourself, God, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, he does. And he's come to seek and to save you. Jesus came for you. He came to go to the cross and die a death he did not deserve to shed his perfect blood so that you might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in him. And all that is good that God wants for you, he wants it for all eternity. And all that God requires of you is to say, God, you're right, I'm, I'm wrong. I can't do this on my own. I can't be good enough. I, I've tried to clean my life up. I can't do it. And I recognize that I need a savior. His name is Jesus and to trust him. If you're here this morning and you need to, you, you want to do that, come and please and ask and ask the question. You don't have to do it during the service, during the invitation. You can do it afterwards and we can talk about it. We'd love to take you through God's word and, and show you clearly from his word exactly what is planned for you to redeem you out of hell and eternity of damnation, uh, what that plan is. But for those of us and, and you too, what is, what is the plan? What, what should we do now? Well, my fifth point, we should live in dependence upon him. That was God's original intention. For us to be dependent on him, dependent for our salvation and dependent for every day and every moment beyond. How can you do that? Get saved and live your life attached to God like we saw in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. 
In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Live your life attached to him. Live a life of prayer for one another, for, for, for dependence upon things that you need from God and for guidance. That demonstrates your dependence upon God. Eve, in that moment, she should have turned and said, hey, hey God, I'm kind of trying to make a hard decision here. Listen, when you face sin, you can turn to God and to be dependent on him. And he'll guide you and help you through that. Align yourselves with his will, his priorities, his practices. How about you just do this? Look to the book. And I got to stop. You're going to be mad that you're late for the Super Bowl. Listen, God had a, has a plan for all of us. He wants to provide all that is good for you. Does that mean your life is going to be a life of comfort and, and plenty? No. But it means that you'll live a life that is blessed by God and cared for by God and directed by God. And let me tell you, there is no kind of peace or joy that you're going to find in any other place uh, it seems multiple times this week, uh, uh, I was reminded that money does not buy joy and happiness. It just doesn't. Uh, plenty of articles about people who think, you would think they have everything they need and they're miserable. They're miserable people. They live miserable lives. You'd think they're the most coolest, famous, richest, and some of them are the coolest, famous, most famous, richest people. But they're miserable because they don't have what really matters. They don't have what God has for them. And you might be thinking you're going to give up a lot. I, you know, you can't keep all the money in your bank account. You can't keep that career that you've worked so hard for. You can't keep the college degrees that cover the walls of your office. You can't keep uh, uh, those sinful relationships that you desperately want to hold together. You can't keep those things. But there's one thing that God will keep for you, and that is eternal life. Amen. And the blessings that come with living for him. If you want to live, you want to really live. You want to be a rebel? Hey, man, the greatest rebellion that exists in this world right now is being a Christian. It's about as most, that's about the most backwards way of living to this whole world. They've never seen anything like it. They think it's crazy. Let's stand together. What will you do today? Will you live in dependence on him? you acknowledge that maybe God knows better than we do? Maybe there's an area of your life you need to surrender to God. Maybe there's someone in your life you need to be praying for more frequently. Maybe there's someone you've been praying hard for and you just need to keep, it, keep at it. I don't know. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ. Whatever it is, will you respond to him today? Father, I thank you for your love.